Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 59, Why Did the Arabs Win? Part 4, The Conquest Society. Last time, we looked at some of the factors which led the Arabs to take over political control of the Fertile Crescent. It's still a mystery how exactly the armies were formed, which could topple both the Byzantines and the Sassanids, within such a short space of time. Once victorious, though, we are on firmer ground in understanding how the Arabs kept winning. You already know the narrative from a Roman perspective, so let's just briefly add the Sassanid side of the story. You'll recall that after Khusro II was murdered, during the war with Heraclius, a series of civil wars rocked the Persians until Yazdegerd III, Khusro's grandson, became king of kings in 632. He was only 13 years old when the shocking defeat at Al-Qadassiyah took place. After the battle, the king was whisked northwards, and the wealthy citizens of Tessaphon followed behind him, desperate to get away before the victorious Arabs arrived at the gates. The king fled across the Zagros Mountains to Medea, while the remnants of his army gathered at the fortress of Jalula in the foothills. Once again, their army was beaten by the Arabs and routed. Iraq now lay defenceless before the Muslims. The Sassanid troops left behind were either hunted down or agreed to join the Arabs. Like the Taurus Mountains, the Zagros offered a natural line of defence for the Iranian homelands of the Sassanids. But while Heraclius had responded to his defeats by refusing to face the Arabs in pitched battle again, Yazdegerd and his advisers decided to continue to fight. Over the next three or four years, as Heraclius passed away and Egypt was invaded, the Sassanid army began raiding Iraq probing for weaknesses in the Arab occupation. These attacks, though, made up the mind of the Arab commanders that they would have to go on into Iran and end the Sasanian menace for good. Yazdegerd called on his eastern armies and retired veterans to help fill out the depleted ranks of his western force, and they, these troops began to gather at the city of Nihavant. The Arabs marched in force across the mountains, engaged with the Sassanid army, and defeated them again. 
This was just the sort of last stand that Heraclius had forbidden, and it was to prove fatal for the Persians. Like the Romans, their field armies were at a low ebb after the Great War. Now that they had been crushed, Yazdegerd was forced to flee east and beg his regional governors for their support. However, the men and cash needed were not forthcoming, with some governors sensing which way the wind was blowing and preparing to cut deals with the Arabs. Across the next decade, while Constance II grew from a teenager to a man, safe inside the palace, Yazdegerd entered his twenties on the run. After losing faith in his own people for support, he sent messages to his neighbours, the Heftalites and other Turkish tribes, desperately trying to form an alliance that could stop the Muslims. They could not be stopped, though, and slowly capturing strategic locations and making agreements with local power brokers, they closed in. Things came to a head in 651 in the eastern city of Merv. After falling out with the local governor, Yazdegerd was either assassinated or, as legend would have it, killed by a local miller. The miller didn't recognise his sovereign, but he did notice his purse. The Arab army then arrived at Merv to accept its submission, and soon afterwards a colony and military camp would be established there to control the province of Khorasan and maintain control of the whole of the Iranian plateau. Soon after this astonishing victory in the east, Muawiyah, back in Syria, was to lead an aggressive land and sea assault against Byzantium. The death of the Caliph Uthman saved the Romans from further losses at that stage. But the important takeaway from these events is that only 14 years after the battles of Yarmouk and Al-Qadisiyah, the Arabs were able to march hundreds of miles east and west simultaneously. Whether you believe that these assaults were directed from Medina by the Caliph, or if you think that rival warlords were carrying out these invasions on their own initiative, it's still a hugely impressive achievement. This continued success after their initial victories was based on how the Arabs organised their newly won provinces. As you may know, the Arab conquerors didn't lay waste the lands they took over. Instead, they left the basic administrative structures of their provinces intact, including the local tax collectors. This is why, for example, in treaties with the Roman emperors, payments could be made in Byzantine coins. In Syria, Palestine and Egypt, these coins would continue to be used for most of the century. The local farmers, smiths and tanners would continue to pay what they owed to the same bureaucrats who had always collected their tax. In Persia, the same situation emerged. Meanwhile, the decision was made to settle the occupying armies in new garrison towns. We've already seen a few of these formed, including in Khorasan in Iran, Al-Karawan in what was to become Tunisia, and Al-Fustat in Egypt. Back in Mesopotamia, the new towns of Kufa and Basra were founded to house the armies of Iraq, and Mosul, on the northern border of Syria and Iraq, was another. These twin decisions, the maintenance of the existing bureaucracies and the settlement of the military in exclusive towns, was to have far-reaching consequences. For a start, it meant that soon after the victory at the Yarmouk, the Arab armies didn't need to attack local people and drag off their movable wealth anymore. Instead, they could expect their tribute delivered to their door with a smile. 
Not only did this free up the soldiers to continue campaigning, but it also helped attract new recruits. Clearly, once the initial victories were won, every able-bodied Arab man in the Near East was going to want a piece of the pie. But plundering can't go on forever, especially if the territory you were raiding had now become your property. The tax revenues now being delivered to the Arab commanders were what enabled them to keep control of the thousands of new migrants and prevent them from running amok. The D1, or register of those entitled to army pay, was a great tool to keep the Bedouin focused on the goal of maintaining the enormous prize that had been won. And it was an enormous prize. A series of rich provinces, organised specifically to fund a large army, was more valuable than a gold mine. When the Western Roman Empire fell, its tax system fell with it. The Franks and Goths didn't bother with traditional tax raising and instead doled out the land to their followers. These men could then become self-sufficient and were less easy to conscript for military campaigns, which eventually limited the size and effectiveness of the German armies, something the Arabs had no problem with. This swift establishment of an organised and paid army prevented a Roman or Persian counterattack from being successful. A new power centre had emerged to direct the energies of the Arabs. As the narrative hopefully made clear, the willingness of the new army to keep attacking Byzantium is what truly prevented the Romans from effectively responding or reorganising. If Constance II had been given 30 years of peace to gather his strength, then perhaps a strong response would have come. But the ruthless aggression of Muawiyah kept the empire on the defensive and in relative disarray. In Persia, of course, the results were even more spectacular. I should add that the Arabs did seize some land for themselves, but in the Roman provinces they initially limited themselves to taking over the imperial estates and some church land. This allowed them to leave a lot of private property in the hands of local people. And that brings us to the second great benefit of how the Arabs conquered. By keeping the provincial bureaucracies in place, the Arabs positively encouraged the local populations to peacefully accept the conquests. In Iran, as I mentioned, many of the great families on the plateau cut deals with the invading Arabs to keep their ancestral homes in their hands in exchange for their cooperation. Whole units of the Sassanid army did likewise, recognising that further resistance was futile and that submission would preserve their status and pay. Over in Romania, the Sassanids themselves had already laid the groundwork for the population's acceptance of new rulers. Imagine you were a mid-level bureaucrat in Damascus who turned 20 in, say, 605 AD. Then you would have served three different masters by the 650s. Growing up in Romania, it would have been natural for you to help administer your city and deliver tax revenue to the Army of the East to help meet the payrolls. By your 30th birthday, you would now be doing the same job, but handing over the cash to an agent of Chavaraz, who would be paying his soldiers instead. The return of Heraclius would have greeted your 45th birthday, and by your 50th, the Arab armies had taken over. At this point, I can imagine you're thoroughly relieved to discover that you still have a job, 
that it's the same job and that your new overseers are taking a largely hands-off approach. Their troops are usually on campaign or in their own camps and not marching aggressively through the streets. I think this is the key to our confusion over the Arabs' sudden ability to repeatedly defeat the Roman army. Very quickly, the Arabs were able to transfer the tax revenues of the eastern provinces into their own pockets. This meant that they were actually better financed than the Romans themselves. Syria and Egypt in particular were very wealthy places, far better off than Anatolia, which as you know had been repeatedly sacked and depopulated. In order to protect their dwindling resources, the Byzantines dug in and avoided pitched battles as much as they could, while the Arabs were now able to field cavalry-dominated raiding parties, the conquered lands providing them with the horses they'd lacked during the initial battles. A third major consequence of the Arabs' occupation strategy was that they maintained their Arab and eventually Muslim identity. When a so-called barbarian people conquer the lands of a so-called civilized people, what often happens is that the barbarians lose their own identity and become part of the civilization which they defeated. Famously, the Mongols who conquered China were eventually Sinicized and adopted Chinese ways. Closer to our own story, the Goths and Franks would eventually succumb to much of what was Roman culture. They would become Christians, learn Latin, and eventually hail Charlemagne as Emperor of the Romans. Their Germanic origins had been watered down to fit the dominant modes of behaviour. This was a particular danger for the Arabs, in part because their subjects massively outnumbered them, and partly because their new religion grew out of the Judeo-Christian world. Those who've listened to the episodes on the origins of Islam know that the possibility of the new movement becoming merely a separate form of Christianity was a real threat. But by keeping the new ruling elite locked up in the garrison towns, the leaders of the conquering armies were able to maintain control of their identity. This also prevented too many local power bases from rising up and breaking the caliphate apart. As we've seen, these civil wars did rock the newly founded empire, but it remained an Arab-Muslim affair. The local Persian and Roman populations had to come to the conquerors to advance politically or financially. When they intermarried with the Arabs, their children would become Muslims and learn Arabic. This process took place quite slowly. The middle class and peasantry would remain Christian for centuries to come, but the establishment of the garrison towns prevented the new civilization from being absorbed by the old one. The decision to build garrison towns was probably a mix of good planning and good fortune. Many of the Bedouin felt that living in towns was confining and preferred to live in tents under the stars as they always had while others were afraid to live in the cities of Syria because of the Byzantine control of the sea. The thought that an attack might come at any moment made towns built well inland far more attractive. I hope across the course of these podcasts I've been able to answer a lot of your questions. 
As I mentioned in previous episodes, a lot of you wanted to know about the military tactics of the Arabs and how they were able to defeat the Romans in battle, to which there are sadly few concrete answers. One listener asked about how the Arabs constructed military camps. As far as I know, the Arabs rarely went to the lengths of the classical Roman army of digging trenches or cutting down trees to form barricades. The Arabs travelled into Anatolia with mules, camels and horses in great trains and established lightly defended camps before setting out on horse to raid the countryside. Reports of the few times the Romans were able to inflict damage on them suggest that imperial soldiers caught the Arabs off guard or as they were travelling home when they would be most vulnerable. By the time they began regular invasions of Anatolia, the Arab cavalry would have worn chainmail shirts and carried light shields to go with their sword, spear and bow. This was lighter armour than the heavy Byzantine cavalry, but meant the riders could move faster and with greater flexibility. Essentially, the Muslim armies were made up of versatile fighting men who could fight both on horse and on foot. A veteran Byzantine soldier might still be better trained, but then again, a man who'd grown up in the desert would be far tougher than a raw Roman recruit. So the Arabs probably had better armies man for man. The Byzantine formation training would still, in theory, be a match for Arab organisation, but pitched battles were becoming rarer, and Arab morale was untouchable. As you know, morale is so important to an army, and the Arabs were now bearers of God's favour, while the Byzantines were still in deep shock about what had happened. The Arabs now, of course, had a far larger empire to draw from when looking for new recruits, another advantage, though they did, of course, inherit more fronts to deal with. Listener AX probes around this question, asking, at what point can we estimate that the Muslim armies began to outnumber the Byzantines, or did they have numerical superiority from the start? The best estimates we have suggest that the Byzantines and the Sassanids outnumbered the Arabs in the famous battles. There's nothing implausible about that, even if the Arab historians grossly exaggerate the disparity. The reality is that the Bedouin population of Arabia was always smaller than the settled populations of Syria or Iraq. But of course the damage done in the Great War meant both imperial militaries were at low points. It seems likely that once the Arabs crossed the mountains, either the Taurus or the Zagros, for those campaigns they would have had armies of comparable size to their enemies. And as the century wore on, the Arab raiding forces would have increased in size significantly. Listener GT went very specific on this, asking how many Arab settlers there were altogether compared to the Roman population. He also quoted the ancient historians on the numbers that they claim took part in the conquest. The reality is we have no idea how many Arabs there were. We just know practically that Syria and Iraq support far larger populations than Saudi Arabia does. And that was true then, even if the plague kept emptying the cities. But as I've demonstrated on these episodes, it's the numbers of experienced soldiers that matter when it comes to deciding war. And, of course, as we've seen today, it's the smart administrative and military decisions which allowed the smaller population of Arabs to dominate the peoples they'd conquered. You should definitely not take the figures given by ancient historians as definitively accurate, 
any good modern book on the subject will give you better guesswork on what numbers might have been like. Uh, As for the total population, in episode 39 I gave the very rough estimate of 14 million people living in the Roman East, and that won't have changed a huge amount by 700. One area we haven't talked much about is the sea. It wasn't just on land that the Arabs suddenly matched the Romans. Listener JB asked about the Caliphate's navy. Who built the ships and how did they know how to make warships? Where did the immense knowledge needed to create a war fleet come from? It's a very good question, and the answer is that the conquered Roman populations built and manned the Caliphate's fleets. This is not to say that there were no Arab seafarers. There were. And when traversing the deserts at night, the Bedouin would use the stars as reference points for their movements, which was certainly a transferable skill once they were on deck. However, the large fleets which Muawiyah ordered were constructed in the shipyards of Syria and Alexandria. The men building and manning them were Christians who had worked on the docks for most of their lives. This, of course, raises the question of why they would cooperate with enemies of their faith, or at least cooperate knowing that their target was the empire. Those who've listened to the episodes on the origins of Islam will know something more about the former point. As for the latter, the alienation of the Monophysite community is often pointed to as a potential explanation. And certainly many down in Egypt had no particular reason to love the heretical emperors who had sent militant bishops to persecute them. And now that the grain fleets no longer had to trek to Constantinople, some men may have been set free from a dull and unprofitable career. But really, I don't think we need to look far beyond the sketch I outlined about the administrator in Damascus. These men had spent their lives learning a skill. That skill earned the money which fed their families. The caliph says he wants a fleet. Let's build him a fleet. The Arabs had made no moves to persecute Christians, so why would Emperor Muawiyah be any worse than Constance II? We should never forget that we can look at the whole empire on a map and see the significance of events far away, whereas people on the ground are working from one meal to the next and not always concerned with such things. This is, of course, another part of the answer as to how the Arabs kept winning. Like all great conquering armies, the Arabs incorporated other peoples into their forces. The Romans had demanded auxiliary troops and then federate troops from their neighbours to fight alongside them. Now the Arabs would employ local Christians to help with their campaigns. Within the narrative, we saw them co-opt Slavic deserters to their cause and make alliances with the Armenians so that they would fight alongside them as well. Not to mention the men who would help drive the mules or act as servants for the cavalry or man the supply stations on the routes into Anatolia. It's very likely that the men or women doing these jobs were local Christians who needed the money. Muawiyah is a key figure in all of this. Due to the inadequacies of the historical accounts, we can't be sure of many things about him, but he certainly seems to have operated largely without control from Medina. He was quick to begin building a coalition of support for himself 
and his regime in and around Syria. He was fortunate to become governor there because he inherited the largest population of Arab warriors. After the initial conquests, more Arabs seemed to have settled in Syria than Iraq, and the former Ghassanid-led tribes were well established in the area. Rather than exclude these Christians from the new regime, Muawiyah went out of his way to build relationships with the former imperial troops and make them feel an equal part of the new venture. Not only did they benefit from the tax revenues, but Muawiyah, as you know, insisted on annual campaigning. This had multiple benefits. It kept the Romans on the back foot, it maintained his army as the premier military force in the region, and it brought back booty every summer, which was a great boost to the economy, to the unity of the tribes, and to recruitment. At this stage, the tribe was still the basic organizing unit of the Arab armies. The familiarity and loyalty to one another must have played a part in the military success which followed. Muawiyah was also a fine general as well as administrator. He would rotate troops between the frontier and rear garrisons so that everyone could get a share in the spoils, which doubtless added to the enthusiasm and freshness of his men. Listener AF wanted to know what the true motives of the conquerors might have been, and certainly plunder and a well-paid job in the army rapidly became major motivations, alongside the religious and national enthusiasm that had been stirred up by these military victories. As we've seen, it's much easier to understand the motivations of those who joined in after the Yarmouk than it is to understand those who took part in the battle. Listener T asked about the way the Arabs ruled their territories and even made the same comparison to how the Goths and Vandals ruled the provinces of the Roman West. However, in his question, he used the phrase, the Arabs have just taken over a massive area where the majority of the population is nothing like them. I'm not trying to single you out at all, but I think we all need to understand that the Arabs were not very alien to the populations in the Roman provinces. As we've already discussed, many Arabs lived in Syria and Mesopotamia, and were certainly a very familiar sight. Before Muhammad appeared, the majority of Ghassanid and Lachmid-affiliated tribes were Christians, and it seems likely that many of them kept on being more Christian than Muslim, as we now understand that term, for many decades. The Arab conquerors were thoroughly familiar figures to the conquered people, and in some cases not an unwelcome sight. You should definitely not have in your mind the image of turbans, burqas and flowing robes on one side, and togas, sandals and laurel wreaths on the other. These were people who lived side by side. It was a violent changing of the guard, but more similar to the German takeover of the Western Empire than of the Huns or Mongols appearing like aliens descending on the earth. That brings us almost to the end of the question, why did the Arabs win? I know some of you would prefer a more straightforward answer than a four or five part sprawling exploration of the situation, but the reality is we don't have the sources available to give straightforward answers. There is no Arab maniple system which can explain how they defeated the Romans at the Yarmouk. 
Increasingly, I think Tom Holland's explanation that a freak historical moment occurred when the men of the desert suddenly had an advantage over the settled peoples, thanks to plague, war, and religious belief, is the best explanation we have. I also think we encountered the Germans far more often in the story of the fall of the West and saw them defeat the Romans multiple times, that when the fall of the West came, it wasn't a shock. Whereas the Arabs working with the Persians and Romans seems less to lead to them defeating their masters in battle and taking over the way the Germans did. But it seems likely that that's what happened. I will go back, though, to my point about the Arabs wanting it more, which perhaps is better said as the Arabs were better placed than any other people to make their conquests last. The men of the steppes, the Huns and Hephthalites, could on occasion destroy whole imperial field armies, but they were too distant to conquer and replace the people they'd defeated. The Slavs had come in vast numbers into the Balkans in a similar way to the Arab migration into the Fertile Crescent, but they never established a state which could conquer the area. And then when you look at the Germans, those Goths, Franks and Vandals, they had the power, they stayed and settled down, they did bring the Western Empire to its knees, but eventually they became part of that civilization that they'd conquered. The Arabs were to be different. They were to articulate a religion, a language, and a national history which would so dominate the peoples they'd conquered that those people would become Arabs. Slowly over time, the populations of Syria, Iraq, and Egypt would become like their new masters and adopt their identity. That's what would ultimately transform those brilliant military conquests into a permanent change of civilization. Part of what aided that process, according to historian Patricia Crone, is the ancientness and homogeneity of the Arabs. As a people, they'd been around since biblical times and had a shared history on their own peninsula and an understanding of their past which other peoples didn't have. That sense of a shared history was vital in bringing all those Christian Arabs and pagan Arab tribes together into one tent which would form the new religion of Islam. If you'd like more information on that story, then you can still buy the episode on the origins of Islam. Listener L tells me I should have mentioned that it is over 70 minutes long, so it's definitely going to give you value for money. On the next episode, though, it's time to turn away from the Arabs and back to the Byzantines. I say that, but I suspect we'll have plenty more to say about the new arrivals as we look around the provinces and survey the damage in Anatolia and elsewhere. With Christmas almost upon us, I'm not sure when that will be exactly, but I am working on it. In the meantime, contact me at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com or at the website or on Facebook or on Twitter. Thanks for listening and happy holidays if I'm not back before then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.